Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. A program known as RED, also called Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation, is promoted by the United Nations and the World Bank as a solution to climate change that uses forests to enable ongoing pollution. It is a scheme that fails to directly address the emission of greenhouse gases by polluters, but instead transfers that burden to indigenous peoples and rural communities who have very little to do with global warming in the first place. In 2011, Global Justice Ecology Project organized a documentary team to investigate a red scheme between the states of California and Chiapas, Mexico. The agreement included fencing off portions of the Lacadon jungle and forcibly relocating the indigenous people of Amador Hernandez so California polluters could buy the carbon in their forests instead of cutting pollution. The film, A Darker Shade of Green, Red Alert, and The Future of Forests, details the carbon colonialism of red and was produced from this investigation. With the area closed, the documentary team traveled for three days by bus, truck, on foot and horseback to reach Amador Hernandez. They documented the community's resistance to the planned relocation, and when the community heard that the Mexican military was about to invade, the team was asked to stay and document that as well. They agreed. The Mexican military never came, likely due to a promise of resistance by the people of Amador and the presence of international witnesses. Orrin Langell was part of that team that traveled to Amador in 2011. Langell is a co-founder of Global Justice Ecology Project and director of Langell Photography. He trained as a photojournalist at Manhattan's International Center of Photography and has documented and taken part in campaigns for social and ecological justice for over five decades. His website is photolangell.org. Mr. Langell, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steve, uh, for having me. Before we get into Amador, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, your, your, your photography. Uh, h- how long have you been doing that, and how did you get into that? Um, I guess I started in photography, um, wow, back in, the, back in the 70s, early 70s. My first photo assignment actually was uh, to cover the Republican National Convention protests in Uh, Miami Beach, Florida in 1972, and I was actually for an underground newspaper in St. Louis called the St. Louis Outlaw. And from there, I did a lot of other work. I um, uh, went from there to taking photographs in the the Colorado um, mountains to documenting all kinds of different things, and finally went to Paris for a while and was part of the kind of expat and Paris and um, having that kind of a movable feast life. And it was very exciting. And when I was over there, I was in a um, bookstore called Shakespeare and Company, very famous bookstore on the left bank. And I saw a book about the International Center of Photography and read about Robert Kappa, his brother Cornell and other Magnum photographers. And I decided 
when I get back to the States, I want to, I want to study there, especially with, with Cornell. And I did, I went back and I had that opportunity to, to do that. And, uh, my main assignment was in the latter seventies and that was covering a, uh, a, a wildlife photographer by the name of Peter Beard. He, uh, he was under the impression that the people that live in the forests and in the jungles should be the caretakers of the jungles. They should not be moved out to make pristine wilderness or pristine nature because everything goes belly up after that. So what we want to talk to you about now is that you were part of a team that documented a community in Chiapas, Mexico, Amador Hernandez, that was faced with the threat of a coerced relocation in order to bring about a carbon trade deal with the state of California and Chiapas, Mexico. Um, how did you hear about that deal? Um, well, our media coordinator at that time was uh, uh, Jeff Conant, and he was operating in our California office. And we went to the... Um, Actually, the uh, the 2010 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was in Cancun, Mexico, and we went there and went to you know the normal meetings and listened to all the uh, listened to all the grandiose stuff that the UN was promoting that kind of really made no sense in the real world, and we heard that. Uh, Schwarzenegger and the governor of Chiapas, Mexico, Juan Sabines, uh, signed a, signed an agreement to uh, do a deal under the Red Agreement, and that the UN and uh, the World Bank was pushing. And what it boiled down to that the um, indigenous peoples in Chiapas, Mexico, in a certain area in Chiapas. Mexico in, in the Selva Lacandon, the jungle, uh, a certain portion of those indigenous people would be moved off of the land that they've inhabited. And because of that, then polluting countries in California could have, uh, could use more pollution credits. And those credits happen to be, uh, we believe, in Richmond, California, which is a refinery of uh, oil and all kind of other nasty things, gasoline. And it's also a very large population of people of color, where the people of color were going to be um, subjected to more chemical poisoning. And so you get the, on, on the one end, you get that. On the other end, you get indigenous people's self-determination and livelihood being taken away from them. And uh, so we found out about this scheme and we decided we would go down and investigate it. We did end up getting uh, uh, press credentials or actually we were accredited by the Mexican government to go down and do this as documentary photographers, uh, which I don't think they were very happy giving us those credentials. But we went and uh, it was a tremendous um hard trip to make. We went into San Cristobal de las Casas, which was sort of the cultural capital of uh, of Chiapas, Mexico, made very famous in the Zapatista uprising. And at that time, the jungle was closed off to all NGOs or media and people, the indigenous people, including the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, did, uh, had a closure that no one could get in at this point because the tensions were running high over many different things, and red was one of them, as this red scheme. So 
through a back door we got in. Um, we were very, very lucky. We found we had a good reputation anyway, which was good. Jeff and I had a, a great reputation in Mexico for our, uh, you know, our, our work and our being truthful and working with indigenous people. And so some people actually found a way for us to get in. And we um, left San Cristobal one morning, took collectivos, like little buses, uh, went to one town that night. Then we took a, um, a, a pickup truck, not a pickup, um, a 10-wheeler dump truck to get further into the jungle, got to the big military compound of San Cantin. Uh, and that was as far as you could go by road. Uh, so the next day we hiked in 15 kilometers, 12 to 15 kilometers, slogged through the mud, uh, horseback and also walking and, and got in. And when we, uh, got there, we found, we also brought two, um, Spanish, uh, cinematographers or videographers with us. And when we got there, we found out in a community meeting that the Mexican military was for, uh, kilometers, uh, you know, four days away from coming in. And you mentioned that we were asked to stay. And it wasn't just us being there. I believe that um, it was a very, very volatile situation. You had, um, there, there's always a, a possibility of a shooting war can erupt in Chiapas, Mexico, because of the the discrepancies between the, the indigenous peoples and the Mexican um, government and the, it was partially, yes, we were there. It could have caused an, an international incident. But also, the indigenous people said that they were going to fight back. They were not going to allow the Mexican military to go in. And when they said that and they asked us to say, of course, we had no, as a journalist, I had, would no have, or as a human being, I would have no way to say, hey, no, I'm sorry, we're out of here. Um, so we stayed, and it was a very tense but exciting time and did a lot of the filming for the, um, the video. Right. A darker shade of green. Your reporting uh, was uh, included in that and was a, was a major part of it. How was this carbon trading scheme? And I believe it was under the auspices of red that this was being proposed. What was that right. to do and how was that going to affect the right. indigenous people? Right. Well, it was going to be a forced relocation. It wasn't a, a voluntary relocation. Um, I, I actually, in um, I believe it was 2003, I was in Chiapas where there were some relocations and they were voluntarily. And, and what happened, people were basically thrown into what appeared to be concentration camps. And we covered that for a, um, with a global exchange delegation many years ago. And so the indigenous people kind of knew what would happen. Uh, the military would come in and they would demand them to leave and they were not going to leave. And we knew that they were going to be re relocated somewhere. We weren't really sure where exactly they were going to be relocated. But we did on the trip after we got out of the jungle, we did go to one of the sites where they were going to be relocating indigenous peoples to um um, to so uh, to exist, and it was a prefabricated cities, um, absolutely horrible. So, in in a darker shade of green, there are some interviews uh, with uh, indigenous uh, 
uh, people of uh, Amador. And one of the things that they mention is uh, being forced to cultivate or, or the government wanting them to grow things that they're not even really aware of or, or they don't consider part of their lifestyle. Uh, could you talk about that? Maybe other aspects of what people are calling uh, carbon colonialism. You know, how is that seen in other ways in, in Amador? Well, one of the just one of the tricks that the the military and the government was doing, and they started preparing for these relocations about a year year ahead of time. They cut off all medical supplies to Amador, and like I said before, you know, you, there's no roads into Amador Hernandez, uh, so uh, you know they, you have to either fly them in or come in by uh, horseback, and so that they cut off all Mexico all supplies of any kind of um, of medicine and that was a hard thing to to see uh, but at the same time that they did that that's something that backfired because the indigenous people the healers started just producing medicine that, that they, they that they use all the time in the jungle so it really didn't affect them that much because they were able to use their own traditional um, things, but you know, again, you take people out, you, that know how to do that, and you take them out of that existence and put them into a relocation center. Then they're forced to do, you know, big pharma or whatever if they can ever get it. This is your host, Steve Taylor, and we will be back right after this. Global Justice Ecology Project partners with small nonprofits, acting as a fiscal sponsor, so they can focus on their crucial work for ecological and social justice forest protection, and human rights. GJEP is proud to sponsor the North American Mega Dam Resistance Alliance. The North American Mega Dam Resistance Alliance protects rivers and their communities by resisting the ecological and social devastation caused by mega dams and associated transmission corridors. They seek to debunk the myth that large-scale hydropower is clean and renewable energy and campaign to shut down markets for dirty Canadian hydropower by stopping transmission corridors to the U.S., while promoting alternatives to fossil fuels and hydropower, such as conservation and efficiency. To learn more, go to northeastmegadamresistance.org. Welcome back to Breaking Green. So there's quite a history of resistance in that region. Uh, is that not uh, where some of the original um, EZLN resistance uh, was initiated? Yeah, yeah, I guess in 1994... On New Year's Day um, is when the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect. And uh, that the indigenous people there called it a death sentence for indigenous peoples. Because already the, the indigenous peoples and through with a large population of indigenous peoples throughout Mexico anyway. But they're the poorest of the poor people. And so they knew that they were going to get ripped off with this free trade Agreement and I and in the morning of uh, January the first, nineteen ninety four, there was an uprising where the indigenous people, led by um, the ECLN or the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, uh, took over the um, the San Cristobal de las Casas. They uh, freed political prisoners all over Chiapas. They took over other. Positions and and there was there was fighting for about eleven days, and the Zapatistas did not they they said we do not want 
to farm really, you know, we, we don't want to conquer Mexico's territory. We just want our territory back. That's all we're asking. We want to take care. We want to be in control of our own lives. Well, that went on for a long time, and it's still going on there. There's still conflict. It's not as serious as it was then. It, it um, at, at this time, too, uh, people were starting to understand what corporate globalization was throughout the world. And this was like a shot in the arm for all kind of people who were try, trying to expose what globalization really was. And that was like free trade agreements, uh, all kind of neoliberal trade deals. It was doing nothing, it was taking away private, uh, or taking away public services and putting them in the private sector. And when the, the uprising there was just a big shot in the arm for people working on that because they had something really concrete to show and to show that there is resistance and it's coming from a band of a small band of indigenous people and who, uh, you know, were, were fighting back. And it was also one of the one of the most interesting um, revolutions in that time because it was about the environment. Uh, it, it had a lot to do with extraction of minerals, extractions of forest products, um, and things of that nature. So it, it brought a lot of a uh, lot of things out in the open that were going on in the world. People of Amador Hernandez at, the, the, at, at this point they were sort of. Ha- Half Zapatista community, I think, and maybe a, a half, uh, you know, of, of other uh, communities. There's all kind of different communities in, in the South of Lacandon and the Lacandon jungle. Uh, but uh, this was one of the groups that were, you know, was com- basically pledged to, uh, I I would say it's a nonviolence, but they were surely the, the, the group that that was uh, responsible for the Amador Hernandez re- resistance when we were there, uh, surely believed in self-defense. And there's a big difference that people don't understand sometimes. So, Does anything stick out uh, to you about how the people of Amador communicated what they thought about this to you? Was there anything that was said or anyone you interviewed or talked to that really stands out? Uh, they issued a statement that um, I think because of our trip, and I I can uh, just briefly read read their communique, and it said, "We, the residents of the Amador Hernandez region in Chiapas, which forms the core of the Montes Azules Biosphere Reserve, well known for its extraordinary biological richness, and the site of historic resistance by indigenous peoples, denounce the illegal threats." by the bad government to expel us culturally and physically from our territories have moved from words to deeds, to deeds, our opposition to the theft of our territory, the rejection or rejection of the unilateral delimiting of the agrarian border of the Lacandon community demanded by investors and projects associated with the red plus reduced emission from deforestation and forest degradation project our refusal to accept the conservationist program of payment for environmental services and productive land reconversion and our decision to, real, to re, 
initiate a process of self-determined community health based on our traditional medicine together have aroused the arrogance of the bad government, motivating them to advance a new counterinsurgency strategy to undermine our resistance. It is a strategy that doles out sickness, death, dose, dose by dose. And I think that sums up a lot. Also, when interviewing the people, they asked them, you know, well, what's going on? You know, you're being accused of destroying the land and they're going, why would we want to do this? This is where we get our sustenance. We love, you know, we're, we're not destroying the rainforest. We, we're not doing anything to this except living in a, you know, in a, as a uh, community as we can on the land. And, uh, you, you know, everybody in the community shares in what we do and, those are things I believe, though, also that, that, you know, there's a deeper thing, mindset, too, uh, when you get into dealing with the indigenous cultures and uh, uh, the, the basic other cultures that are out there, non-indigenous cultures, where that, that, that culture of sharing, that culture of, uh, of working with the land and loving the land, um, it scares people because it's a threat. It's a, it is a threat that if everybody could, you know, start understanding this, uh, it might be neater than going to work at Chrysler or something like that if we could do that. In your perspective, from your perspective, who's pushing this uh, carbon colonialism? Right. Well, it's, it's being pushed by entities like the World Bank, um, being pushed by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And from what we could tell, when I first went to my first climate meeting in 2004 in Buenos Aires, I thought it, it resembled a trade show more than everything else with big business all over the place. And it's not what I expected. I, I mean, maybe I was naive, but what I did see was big business is all throughout the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Some of the countries, which, you know, if, if many countries are run up, run, by corporations, of course, you're going to have corporations running the, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the, the World Bank definitely um, was very and is very very involved. I had the pleasure of being asked in 2009 by the Indigenous Environmental Network to go to Anchorage, Alaska, and be a media person for the first uh, North American. Oh, no, the first global uh, indigenous conference on climate change. And the World Bank was all over the place. And they were trying to explain it to all the indigenous people, the elders and everything, how wonderful this was and how good it was going to be. But fortunately, the indigenous environmental network and other people knew better. And they were trying to explain it in the traditional way that this is not a traditional practice that indigenous people need to be thinking about. What we're seeing now is um, the the payment for environmental services or business for nature, all of these things that further commodification of life is going to be pushed in Glasgow in the, uh, the, the UN Conference on Climate Change in November this year, if it does happen. It did not happen last year because of COVID in 2019. In the fall of 2019, the um, UN conference was supposed to be in Santiago, Chile. 
a couple of months prior to that conference, people, uh, uh, people all over the state of, or the state, I'm sorry, throughout the country of Chile started protesting some of the neoliberal schemes that were going on. And it, it just went into this really huge popular uprising. And we thought prior to that even happening, we were going to go back to Chile for a couple of reasons. One, we thought that this is where the, the UN was going to really push through the whole commodification of life where everything has a price tag on it. Everything has a price tag. And we wanted to be there to, you know, to witness this and try to report it, try to explain what was going on. And uh, so we were, and also we, we, we've been to Chile uh, many times and we know that Chilean people are really cool and they know how to have, a, a good, they know how to have a good speed fight when they want to. I was accredited again as a journalist to go down. Um, and then the uh, conference was switched to Madrid because of the turmoil that was going on in Chile. So things got screwed up there. So they weren't able to get the, the commodification of life really passed like I think they wanted to do. Then they couldn't do it the last year because of COVID. So we think this is going to be the year it's really going to be pushed. Um, and a, a lot of people are not going to get it because there are so many things out there like the Paris Agreement, which I don't want to get into a long talk about how it's screwed up. But we oppose the Paris Agreement for many different things. It's a, a lot of people believe what the UN says. They say, okay, we have these targets. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. Almost everything you see is just a, you know, it's a, it's a green scam. And I think that's one of the things that GJF is trying to do right now is to bring out those, uh, those scams that are going on. And also, I believe that there's a, um, uh, a group of, people, and GJEP is involved in that too, have just produced a new book called Hoodwink in the Hot House, and it's all about false solutions to climate change. And that's what scares me, is people are going to be, they're so afraid that, you know, the planet's going to be destroyed, so we have to do something. And I, that's, that's, that's common sense that you would want to be able to do something. But you have to look into what they want to do. All things that they're saying that are good, you open up enough doors and you find out it's about money. And it's not about saving the environment. And it's, uh, it's green capitalism. or the uh, And it's, it's scary. And I think we're, we're headed toward that more and more and as we go along. Have you seen an evolution within the environmental movement? Is there hope there? What's what? How would you look at the how things have been going within the environmental movement over these decades? I think the environmental movement needs to come to terms with a little bit more of reality than that they they work in. Um, not not for all environmentalists, uh, um, but I, I don't think there's a really a holistic understanding of how the world works. A lot of people, when they, they, they look at the world as, okay, you have the environment and not the way that the things make up the environment, sometimes they can look to how everything is interconnected, but they forget about how everything is connected on a social and, uh, uh, and, and, a social and economic level. And when we were in Chile, 
when they pulled the convention to Madrid, most of the NGOs that were down there flocked to Madrid without trying to realize that this is where the people in Chile were saying that this is where one of a lot of neoliberalism began and this is where it's going to end. And if some of us who see neoliberalism being a threat to life on earth and to freedom and to, uh, you know, ecological sustainability, to have people flock away there, they should have stayed and joined the, you know, people in the street and sort of making it, making a call about, this is about money. This is all about money. And a lot of environmental groups just don't do that. They just don't understand that there's um, there, there's something higher. People need, in my opinion, to consider system change. It's not going to be easy. Uh, people right now, I know in the United States, most environmental groups want to make it sound like everything's going to be okay. If we put this Band-Aid here, we do that Band-Aid there, it's going to just be okay. It's not going to be okay because it never has been when that's like rearranging the deck to chairs on the Titanic. Um, people need to realize that we need a very deep systemic change in this country. We need to be looking at things much differently. We need to be looking at life itself much differently and, you know, and respecting it and respecting what nature really is and respect the people that are living in nature right now. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and talking about your trip uh, to uh, Amador and uh, how it contributed to A Darker Shade of Green, uh, a video that is receiving more interest now as uh, the 10th anniversary has rolled around. So thank you, Mr. Langell. Thank you, Z. You have been listening to Breaking Green, a global justice ecology project podcast. To learn more about Global Justice Ecology Project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 1-716-257-4187. That's 1716-257-4187.